Andrew Cannell, and I am the Director of Student Ministries here at Grace. And while Matthew is getting this opportunity to go to Kenya to serve with the missionary team, me and Pastor Steve get the opportunity to preach around the Thanksgiving holidays. And so it made me think maybe I share with you guys something I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for many things, but I love a good story. I am thankful that God blesses us with stories, whether it's a movie or reading a book. And believe it or not, I even went with my aunt to go to a storytelling convention. That is how much I love stories. And I truly believe this, that a good story, the reason that they really just make our hearts leap with joy, is because they point us to God's goodness. And today, this Sunday, I want us to highlight one particular type of story that is near and dear to our God's heart. And that is the underdog story. An underdog is a person who has little status in society, a competitor thought to have little chance of winning a fight or contest. Many sport movies play into this trope. For example, we have Rocky, where this no-name boxer gets this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to fight against the heavyweight champion, Apollo Creed. Maybe you're more of a football person. There's the movie Rudy, based off of a true story about how this young man was told he'll never play college football. And not only does he get the opportunity, but he sacks the quarterback and gets carried out the field. But maybe you're like, I'm not much of a sports guy, Andrew. Maybe you're more into, like, fantasy and sci-fi. Well, fantasy movies also use this underdog message. So, for example, if you know the classic Star Wars, it's about some teenage farmer who's told that he's destined to destroy the evil empire. Or if you know the works of Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, it's his small, insignificant hobbit characters that end up defeating the evil emperor. And, of course, we see the underdog story time and time again in Scripture. I mean, it is story after story where God uses the lowly in society to accomplish his great purposes. We see this particularly in the story of Abraham and Sarah as these two nobodies who are old and childless, are told by God that they are going to have children that will multiply, or that will be bigger than the stars in the sky, and one of those offspring, one of those descendants, will be a blessing to the whole world. We see it when God sends Samuel to this man named Jesse, and out of all of his children, he picks the runt, the baby of the family, David. And he tells that David that he is going to be a king and his family lineage will have no end. And Jesus himself prays thanksgiving to the Father that God chooses underdogs. I did a little research and I expect for you guys to challenge me if I'm wrong. I could be wrong on this. But as I was looking for times Jesus gives thanks, I had three examples kind of give up. There's A lot of examples where Jesus gives thanks, as in he, like, blesses and thanks God for something, as, like, we do before 
we, pr we pray to God and give him thanks before we do sermon, doing a miracle, whatever it is, Jesus would give thanks in that way. We see it when he raises Lazarus. He says, God, I thank you for listening to my prayers. But then he also says, he's a, he says that to make sure everyone knew this power came from the Father and not himself. But the only time that I can think of where God says, God, the Father, thank you for this specific attribute, for this specific character, is found in Matthew eleven twenty five, in which Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. This might sound a little familiar. I got to preach a while ago on Mark 10, where Jesus again tells the little children to come to him. Jesus time and time again affirms the lowly, the childish, and says God has a special place for you. And he goes against those who are haughty and proud. I think we all know from experience, when we see a rags to riches story, there's something that just gets our heart like rejoicing. When we see someone go from nothing to something, there's something beautiful there. And if we're honest... There's a little satisfaction when we see someone who's kind of arrogant, kind of obnoxious, and we see them get humbled. And I don't think it's an accident we feel this way, because I think it reflects the way God promotes his kingdom. And Jesus believes this so heartily in his heart, because first of all, he shares the same heart as the Father. So everything Jesus feels is in connection to what the Father feels. But Jesus gets this message reinforced because of his other parent, too. Because his mother, his earthly mother, Mary, was an underdog who God showed favor, grace, and mercy. And that's where we get the title of today's sermon, Mary's Song for the Underdogs. And I always tell my youth this because I'm always worried that they're going to fall asleep or they're going to start thinking about food. I always tell them, I want to give you this one main idea. So that way, if you get disrupted, at least you can take away one point. If you get anything from today's message, know this. God loves the underdog by exalting the humble and humbling the proud. Amen. And he, as we're going to follow this, we're going to track this message by seeing how God exalts the humble, God will humble the proud, and God's exaltation, it's interconnected with all of us. Mary's song for the underdog, more popularly known as the Magnificat, is Mary's response to her visit from another underdog. So before we go to her song, let's talk a little bit about who she's visiting with. And that's her cousin, Elizabeth. And she might not at first glance seem like an underdog, a lowly in society. She's actually a priest's wife. You'd think that would make her special. But the problem is, in her society, she was old, barren, and had no children. So that means people in her community would have viewed her as cursed. And this might play out in different ways. Some Israelites would look at her and be like, hmm, the reason she doesn't have children is because there is a secret sin in her heart and God is punishing her. That's how some people would treat her. 
Others would treat her, they'd be like, oh, bless her soul. She doesn't get the blessing of having a family like we do, one of the best blessings of Jesus and she doesn't, or of God, and she doesn't get it. And others would be like, ooh, all these things, and she has no one to share in her inheritance. And of course, Elizabeth and her husband, Zachariah, felt this. And they would petition to God to change their circumstances. And so one day, God sends an angel. An angel goes to her husband, Zachariah, and says, Do not be afraid, Zachariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. And she rejoices. And at first, I'm a little surprised, because my sinfulness would be like, Really? Now? Years and years I've been praying for this, and now you're going to finally answer me? But that's not Elizabeth's heart. Because Elizabeth knows her place. She's one person in a sea of so many other people. And this is the God of the universe. The God who created the cosmos. To Elizabeth, it is a delight that God would care about someone as little and small as her. When she has a moment to herself, she says, This the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Elizabeth sees that this miraculous birth is not just a cool blessing she gets from God, but it is a reminder that God actually has been listening to her. That God genuinely cares about her problems and struggles. And... The rest of the world is going to see that too. Those who mocked her, those who said, oh, she must have secret sin in her life, they're going to know that the God of the universe loved and cared for Elizabeth. And so here's my first question I want you guys to be thinking through. Do you believe the God of the cosmos, the God of the universe, looks upon you? Now, I could go on about Elizabeth forever, but I think we need to go back to Mary, too. You might be more familiar with this story. Uh, Mary, of course, is seen by that same angel that went to her cousin Elizabeth. And this time, the angel said that, I have a special news. Because even though you're unmarried, even though you're a virgin, you are going to carry a child. And this child is the promised Messiah who's going to be the Savior of the world. And Mary is in disbelief. It is overwhelming. So what does Gabriel do? The angel goes to her and says, Your cousin Elizabeth has also experienced this miraculous, uh, miraculous conception. Go to her and share this news with her. So it says Mary um, hastily goes to Elizabeth. She rushes over to her home. And it's, I picture this, because remember, this is in the days where you could text people and be like, I'm on my way. So Elizabeth's probably doing her stuff. And she kind of sees Mary entering the door and coming to her. And she's filled with the Holy Spirit. And as she's filled with the Holy Spirit, her baby in the womb, you might know him by John the Baptist, it says he is so filled with thanksgiving, he leaps in joy still in the womb. And Elizabeth shouts, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord 
should come to me. I think for a second, and I'm like, wow, Elizabeth is really gracious. Notice how there is no envy in her voice. Again, maybe I'm just more of a sinner than Elizabeth, but if I was in her shoes, I might be like, wow, I got the short end of the stick. Mary here, she gets to have the son of the Messiah. Her son gets to be God in flesh. Here she is, this young, not even married woman, and gets this honor. And year after year of my prayers, and I might get John the Baptist, but he's no Jesus. (laughs) But no, Elizabeth has the heart of an underdog. She knows that every single blessing that comes to her is more than she deserves. There is no envy when she doesn't think she deserves the little bit that she has. And so when she sees Mary, she doesn't get upset. She thinks to herself, what another blessing. It is just a blessing that God would think enough about me that I could see the Messiah's mother face to face. And as Mary processes all of this news, she literally bursts into song. So everyone join me in singing. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Please follow along as I recite the song of the underdog that Mary in her excitement bursts into the song. She sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the humble state. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, and he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is an amazing prayer of thanksgiving, and as we break down this song, I hope you see yourself, like Mary, as an underdog whom God has given you more and more than you could possibly deserve. Our first point is God exalts the humble. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's like everything in her being, her soul and her spirit, it is expressing this huge praise to God, but why? Because God has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call her blessed. She knows God has seen her and given her this amazing honor. The theologian R.C. Sproul puts it this way. This is the original Cinderella story. R.C. Sproul writes, The Cinderella story that was not a fairy tale, it was not a myth, but was a sober reality and truth. Because God himself looked at this lady in her low estate. She was lowly, had a low estate, but what does that mean? Well, first, let's look at her background a little bit. 
We know that she was an Israelite. And while she should be living in God's promised land, flowing with milk and honey, with God as her king, the Israelites rebelled against God again and again and again. And God finally says, you know what? If you don't want me to be king, I'll let your enemies have you. And so Elizabeth, or Mary is living in Roman-occupied Jerusalem under the thumb of a pagan king. And not only is she living in a conquered land, but she is a woman in a patriarchal society and is pregnant but not married yet. I'm sure you can imagine some of the implications for her there. And she doesn't have wealth to her name. One reason you might be able to suspect this is, look, if you're stuck living in the barn, you probably don't. If you get stuck being kicked out of the end to live in the barn, you probably don't have the wealth to fix your situation. But here, and I think Pastor Steve mentioned this a while ago, here's a biblical reason we know they don't have wealth. When they were dedicating Jesus, they sacrificed turtle doves. Usually, if you had money, the Levitical works would tell you that you would sacrifice a lamb for your baby. But if you were poor, you could sacrifice turtle doves instead. And the significance of this is we know that God chose a woman living in a conquered land who's not even married yet and had no money to her name. From a worldly standpoint, she was an underdog. But we need to be careful when we use story illustrations, because sometimes we can take the, the illustration too far. Here's where the Cinderella story doesn't work. Cinderella ultimately was rewarded because she had inward beauty. The reason she got to be a queen is because fate or whatever saw that she was a good person, and they rewarded her for it. Now, I don't want you to be mistaken. Mary has inward beauty. She is one of the figures in the Bible that I do look up to as a role model. But one, nowhere in Scripture does it suggest that she's sinless. She needs a Savior just as much as we do. But the other thing about her is Mary never says that God chose her because she was the most spiritual, awesome person in her generation. No, Mary goes out of her way to say the complete opposite she says that God's favor was purely an act of grace. Him choosing Mary was an act of mercy that she did not deserve. Mary did not get this because she was somehow better, but because God chooses underdogs in all areas of life. For he has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. I love this. Mary doesn't say, oh, and this blessing is just about me. Mary says, no, this blessing is for all of those who fear the Lord. If you feel like an underdog, if you feel like you are unworthy of God's attention, of God's favor, I have good news for you. That's how God chooses his people. I want you to think for a second, because I know in all of our heads, we have people that we think of like super Christians, right? Some of you, it might be our amazing pastors, maybe our amazing worship team, missionaries, elders and deacons, lay leaders. Maybe it's just your neighbor who's an awesome Christian. There's someone in your head, and you're like, they got their lives together. 
Here's the little secret. The only reason they got to that place is because God has shown them favor and mercy. It has nothing to do with their own strength. If you feel like there's no way God could use someone like me, no, that's how everybody in God's family feels. And yet God does miracles. And anyone who struggled with that last statement, there's any of you that were tinged feeling like, well, wait a second, Andrew, I worked really hard to get to God's table. It wasn't purely by grace. You're really not going to like this next point. God humbles the proud. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. In all good underdog stories, the humble is exalted, but a, the cost of that is the pride, proudful, the prideful are humbled. John Calvin compares this to the Tower of Babel. He says that any time we think we can come up to God on our own strength, it'll eventually come crumbling down. He continues to write, It is because the great, the rich, and powerful, lifted up by their abundance, ascribe all the praise to themselves and leave nothing to God. We ought, therefore, to be scrupulously on guard against being carried away by prosperity and against vain satisfaction of the flesh, lest God suddenly deprive us of what we enjoy. Calvin, I think, hits it right on the head. Pride is first and foremost a heart condition. It is a heart condition of thinking you have put in the work to get the things you have, and it's not based on God's might and power working in your life. I have met some people that have abundance, and yet they always point their thanksgivings and blessings to the Father. They never claim it as their own strength. There are rich people who are actually some of the most humble people I know. And the reverse of that can be true, too. I know people who have nothing, and yet they are some of the most prideful people I know. It's about our hearts. And I say this because, look, we live in Hilton Head. I mean, we have the blessings of living on the beach, and some of you guys might have a few more abundances than that. And I'm here to say you can still be humble and have possessions. But I want to be careful. I don't want to tickle anyone's ear and say something that's a lie either. And so I want to also warn you that the Bible is also full of warnings that abundance can turn and distract you from God really easily. So I'm not saying you have to get rid of your possessions, but if you have them, be careful that you are always pointing it as a blessing from God and not your own doing. There's so many Bible verses warning us that the love of money is the root of many evils. Jesus warns us that we cannot serve two masters, we cannot serve God and money. And even Proverbs says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall. So be careful. If you have many things, it's not a sin. As long as you're making it about God who's given it to you. 
because every good blessing is a gift from God. And so here's the question you need to be asking yourself. Who or what do you give thanksgiving to for your peace of mind, protection, and success? Because if it is anyone or anything other than God, Mary is warning you, it will crumble away. But wait, you might interject. Mary seems a little bit of a hypocrite. I mean, look how arrogant and pompous sounding she is. She's like, look at me. I'm going to be blessed from generation to generation. Wow. Even if that's true, it's kind of pompous to be bragging about it. You might be thinking to yourself like, well, um, if you care about being called blessed, are you not caring about the approval of others? Doesn't Jesus warn you you're going to get your reward in full? Should not Mary have kind of just downplayed the whole she being blessed by being the mother of the Son of God? Just kind of made not a big deal about it, so she keeps the attention off of herself. Well, the short answer is no. Mary is not doing any of those things, but I I get the concern. It is really easy to turn a blessing from God as an idol. We can do that when we forget our status as an underdog. Some of us might be like, oh... I've earned all these good things that God has given me, and then it no longer is a gift from God. It's something we've done. It's self-righteousness. Other times we forget that all the provisions God gives us, and we are, sorry, let me rephrase that. Sometimes we care more about the provision God gives us that we neglect the provider. We forget that's connected as a gift from God. So, for example, you've all seen in a sitcom before where, like, there's some rich, ungrateful kids, and they care so much about the rich things daddy and mommy can get me, they forget that it comes out of love from their parents. How quickly do we do that with God? Where we focus more about the things he gets to us, and we forget that all these things are supposed to be reminding us that God is hearing us, that God cares about us, that he values us. All of these things has to be rooted in God caring for us. And that's what Mary does the entire time. Notice that Mary says about when she's talking about these blessings that people are going to call her blessed. It's rooted in the fact that he who is mighty has done great things for me. She recognizes it's not her own goodness. It's not her own strength that gave her this blessing. It was God. And she also realizes that these reminders that people calling her blessed, that's not what she cares about. It's a testament. It's people affirming the fact that God has done something good and amazing for her. And I want us to be careful because I'm not teaching a prosperity gospel. I'm not teaching us that if we love God that he's going to give us wealth, health, and all the things that we could possibly want. But what I am saying is that God sometimes gives us extra blessings like he gave Mary. He gave her this honor that she didn't deserve. And when God gives you those extra blessings, you don't have to pretend that they're not good and enjoyable. But instead, you should have a heart that says, thank you, God, for giving me these things. All these things should be a tangible expression that God has listened to you and showed favor to you and loves you. And I also want to remind you, too, that it is true. Some of the most 
known and loved Christians are the ones who live some of the most suffering and difficult times. God doesn't bestow his favor and blessing purely by gifts. You can't judge how much God loves you based on your possessions. But when God does offer you something, you don't have to have false humility and pretend it's not a good thing that God's given you. Use all things that come your way as a chance to worship your creator. And this leads us to our final point. God's exaltation is interconnected. Mary concludes the song with, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Peter Bolt writes, Mary and Elizabeth praise God that the promise first given to the patriarchs are finally being fulfilled. After the sermon, I encourage you to go to my fifth and sixth graders in this room right now because we've been going over the family tree of Jesus. And as we've been discussing the family tree of Jesus, we notice that God cares about people so much it lasts past their lifetime. This blessing Mary gets is connected to a promise and love to Abraham that happened 42 generations before Mary was even born. Mary's blessing is connected to a promise that God gave Abraham. And just like Mary's favor is connected to Abraham, the favor we get from God is connected to Abraham and Mary too. That we actually get these same blessings, actually even greater blessings, because God showed love to Abraham and Mary. Because you see, the greatest gift the father gave Mary was not the honor of being the mother of Jesus. The greatest gift will be her son's blood. I can't imagine what it was like for Mary to have to watch her son's agony. And yet it was through that death and his resurrection that Mary is the benefactor of the greatest blessings. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that she gets to be co-heirs with Christ. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection Mary will not only be reunited with her boy, but more importantly, her Lord and Savior. And it is not by being the mother of Jesus, but it is through Jesus' death and resurrection that she will be able to go to all the places of honor in heaven. And this gift can be yours too. When you unite yourself with Jesus' death and resurrection, you too get to be co-heirs. You too get to share in Jesus' glory and his grace. And if you're thinking to yourself, wow, this life has not been a life of earthly blessings for me. Well, here's the deal. One day you will be reunited with Jesus. And he is going to give you, he is going to share all of his celebrations with you because he has called you his child. So I want to conclude with this. Um, feels like trunk or treat was just yesterday, and now Thanksgiving is four days away from us. And you guys are going to enjoy some good food, some good company, hopefully some good conversations and rest. And someone's going to go, and they're going to be like, all right, everyone, share something you're thankful for. And when you do this, I want you to really think about it. Because if you see yourself as an underdog, 
as unworthy of God's attention, then you're going to realize all these things you're thankful are directed to him. That God has actually heard you and cared about you and has given you more than you could possibly deserve. So here is my final question. What is a gift God has mercifully given you that you are thankful for? And we'll let the slide go up if you need to record any of those questions or rethink through the thoughts. But I thought I'd share one more thing that I'm thankful for. It's a little cheesy, so show me some grace. I am actually thankful that I am the director of student ministries here at Grace. I know that I am far, far from perfect. I know I have put my foot in my mouth. I know I've handled situations not the best. And I know there are people in this room who could probably do my job better. In fact, I guarantee you that there's a a man in Kenya right now who, if God gave him the opportunity, would steal my job from me in a heartbeat because he loves youth ministry so much. But God has given me this blessing, this favor. I think of in the same way that Mary thinks about how people are going to remind her from generation to generation and call her blessed. I think years from now, there are going to be teenagers, when they look back at their years of youth ministry, they're going to say, Andrew was my youth minister. Like, wow. When I think about that, I think for behold, now there will be youth who refer to me as a youth minister, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And I hope you guys have felt that too. Some sort of extra mercy where God has said, I've seen you and I've favored you. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this opportunity. I thank you that you have called me your son. And I thank you for blessings I do not deserve. So I ask you, Lord, to help us all see the things you've given us the ways you have chosen to use us. I thank you, you are a God of love, and you care for people who should be considered insignificant like me. In your name we pray.